God. All right, listen. We are about to start a new series. So we've spent the last few weeks, um, over a month actually, just reflecting on the gospel, what it is and what it's not. I'm sure some of you don't like that noise, but I'm sorry. That's all right. It gives me a better vantage point. Um, and we considered last week just how Christianity ought to look as it relates to culture and class. <clears throat> and so today we're going to start a new series that is really kind of building on last week and just considering the, the outworking of the gospel in real life, the outworking of the gospel in everyday life, the gospel lived out, the gospel made flesh, the gospel 3D. So um, some of you who've been able to see will see the, the 3D glasses there and um, you'll kind of look at them and think, hmm, they look kind of old school because they're not like the 3D glasses that you have now. And, um, you know, it takes me back to the days when Channel 4 first broadcast the 3D program. <laughs> and in the, the, the tabloids, they were giving away three pairs of 3D glasses. Not three pairs. Three pairs. <laughs> the F is intentional in that instance. And, and you got your, your 3D glasses, and you, you waited, I think it was about 7 p.m. was the program, and you put your glasses on, and you expected to kind of just be bowled over by the images jumping out of the screen at you. And it was a little underwhelming, but it was 3D. <laughs> and so, there's definitely a sense in which the gospel is timeless. It's classic. It's vintage a bit like these old school 3D glasses. And yet it is also for now. It is for today. It's even for tomorrow. It's even for the future. That's how classic and timeless the gospel is. And the gospel ought not to be treated in the way that this person in the story I'm about to tell treated this car, this, this wonderful brand new car that he was given. So he was approached by his son. He said, look, this car is the, is, uh, Dad, I've, I've, I've got this car for you. And it's absolutely amazing. It's wonderful. This car is the latest in technology and all that technology has to offer. And this car is going to give you a life experience that you, you could never imagine. And you will see places that you never thought you could go. And you will have such um, sensory experiences that you never thought that you could have. And his dad was, was you know, well into retirement. Wasn't really given to cars. It kind of stopped driving some time ago. Couldn't really be bothered with it. Didn't really have any much need for it. And so he looked at this car and he was like, Okay. He wasn't really into driving. Didn't care for it. He'd go out and look at this car. Sometimes he'd go and he'd sit in the car. He'd even turn it on and rev the engine. A few months later, his son came back to him. Dad, 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 what did you think of the car? Don't you think the car's wonderful? His dad was like, hmm. You know what, son? I, I, you know, I got in the car and... I looked through the windows, looked through the sunroof, sat behind the steering wheel. Sometimes I even sat in the passenger seat. There were a few occasions somewhere I started the car and I even revved the engine. But it just, it just didn't deliver all that you, you, you promised. And his son looked at him incredulously like, are you actually serious, Dad? Dad, you're not going to have any kind of experience unless you drive the car. Now, his dad had so given up on driving and so couldn't care about driving that the most important thing that he was supposed to do with that wonderful vehicle, 
he hadn't done and failed to come anywhere near to experiencing all that it promised to offer. And so often, that's how people treat the gospel. We read our Bibles, even memorize verses. We talk about it. But in terms of actually living it out and experiencing it, we fall short of all that it promises to offer. See, the gospel isn't merely a philosophy, an ideology. It's not merely ideas to take on board or convictions to believe. But as we'll see in this series, our beliefs must lead to behavior that correspond. And so at this juncture, as we reflect again on our, our vision, uh, uh, an ever-progressive vision, a vision that we will always be aiming to fulfill, our vision to be a healthy church, equipped to disciple and faithful on mission, we again are going to be encouraged and instructed through the book of Titus. So today is an introduction, and we will look at the first four verses by way of introduction, but I want to kind of give a sense of what to expect from Titus. So before I do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that truly you are the living God. You're not dead. And there's no way whatsoever that you would have your people have a dead relationship with you but that we would have a relationship with you that is living and real and vibrant, effective and purposeful. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us today as we are introduced to your letter of Titus, that, Lord, it, it, it would be such that it really meets us where we're at, that it would encourage us, that it would instruct us, that it would comfort us, that it would challenge us and convict us and cause us to grow closer to you, Lord, as we mature in the, 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 the fulfillment of your gospel in our lives, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. You did not die in vain. May your glory be forever. Amen. So we're looking at the book of Titus, and fundamentally, we see Titus communicate the fact that God is to be revealed through the lives of his people. God is to be revealed through the lives of his people. Now, I'm, I'm very convinced that this series is going to definitely be very encouraging to all those who in some ways or another, have given up on church. And you've kind of felt as though the experience of church doesn't live up to a match with what is read of in the Bible. And so, you know what? Church is long. What's the point? This ought to encourage you because it will again remind you that the problem isn't with the Scripture. It's with the saints. And as we consider that as a challenge for all of us, this is presenting us a blueprint for living that we ought to be living up to and that each of us ought to take responsibility for. I also feel that this is going to be very helpful to those who have gone a step further and given up on organized religion. This very practical book shows that <laughs> yes, God's people are to experience a personal, living, and vibrant relationship with him, but one that is ordered and one that is in community. And so for the person who's given up on organized religion, you know what? This is going to be good for you because it's going to challenge your perception of God. 
This is God's word to God's people. And just as much as individuals are encouraged to to come into relationship and work that out, there is also a clear sense that actually God is not just interested in individuals, but he is committed to the purpose of his collective people. So there is no opting out. There is no doing your own individualistic walk, having your own personal relationship, And feeling that God will be happy with that and satisfied with that. That is below par. That is off key. That is less than God's intended purpose for any of his people. Just considering the the book of Titus as a whole, it's only three chapters, small but power-packed book, Um, this wordle kind of helps us to see some of the real clear themes that are evident. So looking at that, first and foremost, who is the book of Titus all about? God, simple, the biggest word, as it ought to be. It's all about God. And this is why it's about God being revealed through the lives of his people. And yet still we see some other major things there. Good, sound, saviour, works, people, self-controlled, faith. All of these are, are, are basically words that in some way or another are repeated in the book of Titus to the extent that they become recognized as major themes within the book. So... This serves to highlight the practical nature, not theoretical, practical nature of the book of Titus. Right from the outset in verse 1, the Apostle Paul clearly states to Titus that the knowledge of the truth is that which leads to something, and that something is godliness. From the outset, he sets his stall out, he lays his table, This is what this is all about. Godliness. We'll talk more about that shortly. Good works are spoken of numerous times. Chapter 1, verse 16. 2, verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, verse 14. 3, verse 1, verse 5, verse 8, verse 14. It's only three chapters. And yet we see this very strong repetition on the theme of good works. Yes, we're saved by grace, not by works. But we are saved by grace for good works. And not merely good by our own definition, not merely good by society's definition, but good by God's definition. I want us to think about Ephesians 2. A much memorized, often referred to verse of scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And the church said, amen. Amen. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one has any claim of impression before God. But look what it goes on to say. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. What for? Thank you. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's absolutely so crazy when you actually think about what is being said there. 
So yes, we are saved by grace, not by works of our own, not so that anyone can boast before God, but we are his workmanship. That's right. He regenerates. He renews by the work of his spirit. He saves. And yet we are created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works. And look at the wonderful thing. These good works, he prepared beforehand. Before even saving us. Before even creating this world. When he had us in mind at that time of election. You can't even say time because it was outside of time, right? He had you personally in mind. And he had you in mind not just to save you from judgment, from wrath. But he had you in mind for good works that he's prepared for you to fulfill. He's prepared them. He's lined them up. Ah, <coughs> oh, this is too much. My gosh. <laughs> and it's in order that we should walk in them. I think of Philippians 2 where it speaks of the fact that it is God who is all the while at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Now, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So God is all the while at work in you. You know, there's times when you're just sitting at home and just randomly someone comes on your mind and you just think to yourself, you know what, I wonder how that person's doing, you know. And you just kind of got this sense that this isn't just a random thought, but actually, maybe you need to pray for them. Or I had two people this week on the same day, just out of the blue, message me. He was on my mind. Um, is there anything I can pray for you? Or message me, uh, just a verse of encouragement. And you know what that meant to me in that moment? I mean, it, just getting one was blessed. Getting two, the same. I'm like, Lord? <laughs> His eyes really. And so we can take that as being really insignificant. Oh, you know, it's just a text message anyway. Oh, well, Lord, you know what they're up to. And then keep going. But actually, there's a good work there to be performed. Yeah. That the Lord is willing and working in you to do. And so we'll see that this is very much the that the, the sense of Paul's short letter to Titus. Now, I'm going to share an introduction, and um, it's going to be an, a, a video. You've, some of you have seen us um, promote these videos by the Bible Project. They're Bible book introductions. Absolutely tremendous videos. Tremendous. Really helpful. If, if you're an individual who's committed to reading your scriptures, and sometimes you feel, find it a struggle to actually work out what's going on, I, could, I think they've got introductions for every um, book of the Bible now. Um, they're animated and very helpful and very faithful to the text, which is all the more important. So I wonder if we can um, dim these lights at this end for us a bit. And um, let me play this. And as I get ready to play this, I want you to um, think about the answers to these questions that are revealed in the video. Think about the answers to this question, these questions. What place is Titus ministering in? What kind of people are they described as? What do they believe? Who, sorry, who do they believe is God? And what is their God like? So as I play, um, think about those. And then I'll be um, marking you after. <laughs> Tell me that ain't blessed. It's, it's freely available on YouTube. And so you can um, review it again uh, at leisure, pausing as you may wish. Um, but it's, it's, it's helpful to kind of get a clear sense of the background. So, <laughs> before I talk and forget to test. <laughs> um... 
What is the place Titus is ministering in? All right. Hold on. Correct. <laughs> okay. What kind of people are the Cretans described as? Liars. Liars. Treacherous. Lazy. All right. Lazy, greedy liars. It's not a really very good testimony, right? <laughs> okay. Um, who do they believe God is? Uh-huh. And um, what is their God like? A seducer and a liar. Or as they would say in Jamaica, a gallus. <laughs> um, a liar and a womanizer. Yeah? So imagine, this is the picture of the people that Titus is, is bringing um, you know, this letter to from Paul. And this is the plight or the experience of even those who were in the churches. Now, as a result of this, and as a result of the corrupt leaders that had come in and were undermining the gospel, um, Paul gives Titus this letter to the church that are outlining Titus's instructions to be fulfilled, to be carried out among them. And so we see that three chapters break down across three main themes, new heads or leaders, new household and a new humanity. And, and this is the picture that's being painted in these chapters. And as Paul begins to unpack the letter, we see that the need to address these issues from the very outset is being um, highlighted and hit upon. So let's look at verses 1 to 4 um, of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That was a very long sentence. Very long. Paul is known for long sentences. Um, and the only other introduction, Bible um, introduction of Paul's that is equivalent to this even is, is Romans, which is a much longer book. So it suggests to us that Paul is being very intentional. He's, he's being intentional. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't take back his talk. He's being specific about what he's saying, even as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. And even in this greeting, there is something for us to glean um, as to God's intent and purpose for not only the Cretans, but for us. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we see here, first and foremost, Paul declares his state and his status. He declares his state. He is a servant. That word, they say, ought to be translated slave. But because of modern sensibilities, they've kind of termed it a servant. But slave would be a more accurate um, rendering of that word. Paul's saying, I am a slave of God. Now, contrast this with the money-grabbing charlatans who were in Crete, 
ministering, quote unquote, and declaring the name of Christ for their own gain. Paul's saying, I'm a slave, I'm not a charlatan. I'm not of that nature. Furthermore, I am under God. I, I, I belong to him and I am accountable to him. I am to fulfill his charge and command. And this is true for each one of us as believers. And also ought to be true for anyone who is in ministry. Anyone who is given to declaring the gospel of Christ and ministering the word of God, likewise is in such a position as being a servant of God. Especially so. This is true for all believers, but especially of leaders. And so even when you think about the ministries that you see piped through your TV and all of the different kinds of ministries that you get exposed to, it will be helpful to actually consider to what extent are these people serving themselves versus serving God. Because one of the fundamental things expressed in this letter is that not everyone who claims to be a Christian leader is a truly Christian leader. And nothing's changed. And we have to be discerning we have to use the word of God as our reference. You know, some of us have kind of come up in that environment where it's touched not the Lord's anointed and do his prophets no harm. How dare you speak against the man of God? And you feel as though you can't even ask questions, let alone offer a rebuke when necessary. No, no one is above reproach. No one, is, no one is above sin. And therefore, no one is a beyond rebuke. Now, Paul speaks in 1 Peter and in 1 Timothy, chapter 5 of each, how to approach elders, how to approach those who are in leadership and maybe in error, as Titus would have to do. And he says, don't rebuke an elder, but entreat them. And you know, there's certain ways that you can just ask questions and just the, the asking of those questions enough is just a rebuke in itself. Just because you've asked the question. <laughs> Amen. Nathan the prophet to David. Is that not Uriah's wife? <laughs> <laughs> well, with me, I'm undone. Now, not everyone's going to receive it. That's not your responsibility. They have to give an account to the Lord for that. But even as a servant of God, there are times when God calls us to do tough things. We think it's hard enough just sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. Sometimes we've got to really kind of challenge our brother and our sister and even our leaders in the Lord. So Paul states, I'm a servant. This is my status. This is my state, sorry. This is, this is my manner of life. This is the position of life I'm in. But also, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. So I'm a slave, but I'm also a sent messenger. I'm an emissary. I'm an ambassador who has been commissioned into the service of the Most High. And it's important that this is declared in order that people might not just take this letter from Titus and be like, oh, Titus, what have you got for us now? Yeah, whatever. And be dismissive. But actually recognize that fundamentally, this is from the hands of the messenger of the Most High. So therefore, this is a message from the Most High. How often do we read our Bibles and really think about the fact that this is the word of the Most High God? Especially when you've been in the, the scriptures for a little while, it's so easy to become very jaded. And treat it as if it's just 
good information. Sometimes we can feel that, you know, when we hear things of, you know, that relate to uh, the, the business world or the academic world, that that sounds more credible when we hear that from the pulpit. We kind of perk up. When we hear these these terms and, and, and concepts that resonate with what we're experiencing in life and what we're hearing in, in the lecture hall and in the classroom. And, and we can kind of almost give more credibility to these things having become so jaded at the message of the Most High. But this, even for us now, is, is a challenge to us. This letter of Titus, albeit small, is intentionally communicated by God for you. Yet Paul goes on. Not only does he state who he is, but why he is given to this call. And why he is given to commissioning Titus with this message. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The Bible tells us that the trying of our faith works patience. It produces patience in James chapter 1. If there's anything that Satan would seek to attack, it's not even so much your joy or your peace. Not so much your, you know, sense of progress and success. But actually, the attack of the enemy primarily, first and foremost, and ultimately, is on that of your faith. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul speaks about the armor of God. And what aspect of it is the faith likened, is faith likened unto? The the shield. So that is the, the, the line of defense that absorbs the fiery darts. Even if the other aspects of your armor are kind of weak or shoddy, or that shield of faith is going to protect you. And you see, the faith of God's people was in jeopardy. There was a risk of their faith being turned away from the Lord. And so for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, you see, all of the issues of dysfunction within the Christian community there in Crete was fundamental to their appreciation of the truth. Someone once said, belief dictates behavior. What you believe will determine how you behave. It's Proverbs that says, as a man thinks, so he is. Now, some of us, we lost all sense of what that really means because we're just like, I think I'm great. I think I'm blessed. I think I'm rich. I think I'm successful and expect it to come into manifestation. That's not what the verse is talking about. The knowledge of the truth. That knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness or as some translations say, leads to godliness. So truth is not an end in itself. Sundays and the Sunday gathering is not even one-seventh of the Christian life as far as our week is concerned. Us sitting and receiving the word this isn't the main event. <laughs> this is like the trailer. 
Because we've got to live out the main event for the rest of the week. And that's what godliness means. Godliness is God revealed in practice. It is active. It's not passive. It's not, aren't I so godly? As I look piously over you all. And I bid you God's blessings. Because I'm godly. I don't know why I use that voice. But you understand what I'm saying. It's not this kind of inward sense of, I'm wonderful, I'm godly, I'm holy. And that is not expressed in any way at any time. It's expressed when you're on the job, when your, your colleagues are getting on your nerves. It's expressed in the house when your kids are, have got on your last nerve. <laughs> it's expressed in your marriage when your spouse has finished with you <laughs> and you've got on their last nerve. It's expressed in the classroom when that information is completely inconsistent with the truth of God's word. You see, this is what godliness looks like. It's worked out in our everyday lives. It's, it's actively to be pursued and expressed. And that is in the hope of eternal life. Romans 8 says, that which is hoped for is not hope if it's already received. And contrary to cultural trends, there is a great hope in which we live as believers. A hope that is to be an anchor to our soul. Because the reality is that actually Jesus himself said, in this life we will experience tribulation. That is a promise of God. It's not one of the ones you might find on a fridge mag magnet. The promises of God are yes and amen in, in, in the promise of Abraham. Yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You shall have tribulation in this life. But it's important that we understand that. And that we appreciate that nonetheless, everything is going to be all right. Jesus said, I've overcome this world. Amen. Everything is going to be all right. Bah, bah, bah. I've got a feeling. Every... It's more than a feeling, though. And it's more than just a wish. It doesn't mean hope in the sense of, oh, well, I hope so. Maybe one day it might. It's not that kind of hope. It's, it's, it's the kind of hope that says, your bus app says, the bus is going to be here in five minutes. You hope it's here in five minutes. Now, you know it's coming because you're at the bus stop on the bus route. And you anticipate the bus to come. You are confident that a bus is going to come. But that P4, Marseille. <laughs> you just know that it might not run to time. We were lamenting over the, the, the plight of the P4 journey. Oh, wow. So you know this bus is going to come. You know it's coming. It's just a matter of when. So this hope is the confident expectation of that which you know to be true. It's not wishful thinking. It's not merely the expression of a, a whim or a desire even. But it is the confident expectation of that which we know to be true. And we know it to be true, and we see this later on in the letter, because eternal life is ours now. Eternal life is not just a, a, a duration that starts at some point when we die, but it is a quality of life. Not just a quantity. And this is what we are called to now. And so in the hope of this life that we now have and we look forward to without, without measure, without limit, without restriction, we live in this hope. Which God who never lies. Talk about countercultural for the Cretans. Talk about countercultural even for our day and age. You know that in Islam, it's not wrong to lie if it's for the right reason. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not wrong to lie 
if it's for the right reason. So we'd be out on the street doing a good person test, meet a Muslim. So um, have you kept the commandments of God? Hmm. Ever told a lie? No. But surely you just told a lie when you said that you've never told a lie. And in their mind, they don't see it like that. It's like, if, if I've ever told a lie, I've only ever said it for the right reason. It's justifiable according to Islam. Within their code. And yet we serve the God who never lies. What he says is true. Every word of God is true. I'll tell you something, right? There's one thing growing up in the Lord that I really appreciate. The fact that he established in my heart, he done it, established in my heart and life, the authority of his word, the certainty of his word. We, we used to know what it was like to stand on God's word and reject anything that was not according to his word. No, that's not of God. I don't receive that. I rebuke that. That's, that's what I was like. Return to sender. <laughs> because we appreciated that God's word is true. All the earth could melt in flames. God's word remains. It's true. And what God has promised even before the ages began, shall be done. When we say amen, you know what we're saying? So be it. And so we say amen to God's word. Amen. Praise be to God. And yet that which was promised before the ages... And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. So Paul recognized that, look, God, even before time began, had committed this promise, had committed to this promise within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete union complete agreement of person and purpose so shall it be and yet Jesus didn't just come in the garden well let me not let me let me say that cuz technically that's not correct so when adam walked in the garden with god that is technically um described as what they call a theophany or a Christophany. That's a pre-incarnate or pre-bodily revelation of Christ. And you see certain instances of that. Joshua, when he, he meets the angel of the Lord, which was another name for the pre-bodily um, revelation of Jesus. But Jesus had not come in human form at that point in the garden. It was however many thousands of years later, according to the promise and prediction of the, say, of the Father. And so we recognize that there was a specific time. Now, why was it that time? Why was it not our time? I mean, I'm sure we probably feel like, actually, you know what? It'd be really great if Jesus was walking around now. It would make evangelism so much easier. <clears throat> we would think so, wouldn't it? But... There was a proper time according to the Father's timeline, according to his schedule. And you see, the thing is this. So many of us, we get in situations where we just readily disregard the fact that God is God. And he works according to his own time. Back in the day, they used to have this saying... God may not come when you want him. Nobody knows the rest now. But he's right on time. <laughs> he may not come when you want him. But he's right on time. I wonder if I can get a witness. Anyone can testify to the fact that God has been on time in your life. Amen. Amen. It may not have been when we wanted. Right on time. 
So let's just learn to wait on the Lord when we need to. And yet at the proper time, it was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. Again, that, that, that servant talk, that servitude, I've been entrusted with a responsibility by the command of God, our Savior. So Paul is not out here to mess about. He doesn't have leeway and wriggle room. He is under strict instructions. So that was all Paul's introduction of himself and his purpose and his objective as it brings us to Titus. Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now, Titus is somebody who was, a, was evidently a, a, a disciple of Paul's who came alongside Paul and who Paul loved very dearly. We see this in 2 Corinthians 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul was there in Troas to preach the gospel. And he's preaching the gospel and he's just like, nah, I don't feel good. I need Titus, man. Where's my, where's my Don? Where's my boy? Where's Titus? Why is he? No, it's not. I need, to, I need to actually go and look about Titus. That's how loved Titus was by Paul. We see that there was good reason for that. Titus was an encourager. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Some of us know those days. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Imagine somebody say that about you. It's not even just, oh, yeah, you know, I know, sister so-and-so, she's a really nice person. I know, brother, why I'm <laughs> You know, he's, he's, he's a, I mean, for some of us, we'd be lucky to get that right. <laughs> Don't even talk to me about my girl, oh, my gosh. <laughs> They're just... They're just so into themselves. All they ever do is talk about themselves. I just, they just drain me being around them. But Titus, on the other hand, he wasn't even just somebody that they liked or they were glad to know. He's somebody who had an impact on their lives. Even look at the turmoil they was in. Fighting without and fear within, afflicted at every turn. And where did comfort come from? Titus. Praise be to God. May your life be, and may you aspire for your life to be of such spiritual impact that people's lives are affected by your presence. Because it's possible. Titus is somebody who Paul trusted. He was loved. He was an encourager. He had impact on them. And yet he was also trusted. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus. The same earnest care I have for you. Now, if you've ever really had something that you've been responsible for, you know, you, you're in college, you're in school, and you do that homework, you do that assignment, you do that essay, and for just, there's a reason why you cannot hand it in yourself. 
You are not going to give that to just anybody to hand in for you. You're not going to give it to that person who's always misplacing stuff, who's always careless. You know, you're going to come and see it sitting on the desk in the canteen with coffee over it and just like, how did sponge cake and custard get on my... Why is it even here? You're going to give it to that person who trusts, who, who, who you trust is going to care for that in a way that you would care for it. It might be even somebody who's on the same course, in the same class, having to hand in the same homework because you know that they're under the same pressure you are. They empathize with where you're at and so you know what? Let me entrust it to them. I know what it's like in ministry. We see Paul make a reference like this once before in Philippians 2 when he speaks about Timothy. And he says, I have no one who cares for you like Timothy. The Christian life is easily to, it's very easy for us to get so absorbed in ourselves. So absorbed in ourselves that we lack care for others. We're just concerned about our bills and our work and our relationships, you know, the approval of others, whatever it is. And yet failing to care, not just to care for others, but to care for the things of God. Titus cared about the things of God. And in that, he cared about the people of God. And Paul knew that he could trust him. Furthermore, we see that Titus had experience of being sent. Now bear in mind, at this stage, Titus is a send-out. He's a, go and carry this, go and do this. And yet, with such faithfulness, with such care did he fulfill that, that he was given more and more responsibility. Some of us are looking for, you know, oh, you know, I've got this vision for ministry and just, uh, I really feel this is from the Lord and, you know, appoint me to do this. And it's like, okay, so how are you serving right now? Mm. You just want us to hand that kind of responsibility to you, responsibility of people's lives, and so on and so forth. And you can't even show up to help with the chairs when you're on the chairs? Like, and then you want us to put people in your hands when we can't find the chairs in your hands? <laughs> Titus was a messenger. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did, did we not take the same steps? So Titus went along with the brother who had been put out in 1 Corinthians 5, and he went to represent Paul, and he represented Paul well to the point where Paul could say, we were on the same page as Titus. I know Titus didn't come and take liberties with you. He didn't come and strong arm you. He didn't come and have all kind of reckless talk among you. He didn't beat his chest and say, I've come from the Apostle Paul. You need to hear me. Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? And so Paul was able to say, Titus, my true child, my true child, Titus gets me. He gets what this mission is about. He gets who Jesus is and, and what it looks like to serve him. He's been faithful. He's been close. I love this brother. My true child. It's my boy right there. It's my dumb. It says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul sends Titus to put things in order on Crete. And yet it is in the spirit of grace and peace that comes from the Father. And from Christ Jesus, our Savior. There's nowhere else it can be found. There's nowhere else grace, true, genuine, real grace can be found. There's nowhere else in which we can find deeply affecting peace. It comes from God the Father through Christ Jesus, the Savior. And even in that, we see 
Two words being brought together. You know, in Crete, they had a, a community of Jews. We see this in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Cretans were among those who heard the apostles speak in their own language. And Paul takes this term, peace, shalom, which would have been a Jewish greeting. And this term, grace, which was a, a Greek, a common Greek greeting. And he combines these two phrases, demonstrating the universal nature of the gospel. The universal love of the Father as expressed through Christ the Son. And it is with this that he opens his letter. And so I'm going to invite the team to come. The grace and peace from the Father is only through Christ. We do not know peace until we know peace with God. Amen. It doesn't matter how much money a person may have. It doesn't matter how successful they are in their career. It doesn't matter how prosperous they are. It doesn't matter how well they're liked. Peace only comes when you know you're at peace with God. Amen. And yet peace with God only comes by the grace of Christ. Because Jesus gave himself in place of sinners in order that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life, will have that eternal life in which our hope lies. And so you may be here today and you know what, you have little peace in your life. Have you received the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God? Have you actually really embraced that? God is offering and granting to you his goodness as a gift. And that gift is packaged in the person of Christ. Don't turn down such a great gift because you don't like the packaging in which it comes. It's Jesus or not at all. Amen. There's no other place to find it. And yet when you find it in him, it is true. Because God does not lie. Let's stand. Father God, we're grateful to you for your goodness and your mercy. We're grateful, Lord, for the fact that you would even commission those who you raise up who you call out of darkness to carry the good news, to carry that message of eternal life. We thank you that even us here today have received that good news, have received that message because you have purposed even before time began for us to be embraced by the gospel. And so, Lord, I do ask that you would, you would help us to be a people who actively pursue godliness, that we would be a people who don't just talk about it, but we actually work it out. Lord, we realize that we need your grace, your divine enablement in order to do this. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. We thank you for your letter to Titus, through which, Lord, even today you speak to our hearts and lives. And we say all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.